Uh, we are drawing ever closer to the end of our 1 Corinthians series, and uh, we're going to be looking at the passage starting from verse 12 today. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, I think it's on page 1155. Can I have the first picture up, please? In the grounds of the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art up on Ravelston Dykes is an arresting exhibit by an artist called Nathan Coley. It's a six-meter-high scaffold with an arrangement of light bulbs, as you'll see from the next picture, that spell out the message, there will be no miracles here. It's a clever piece. It's carefully positioned with Edinburgh's most famous landmark, the castle, as a backdrop. The statement and the backdrop, I think, are meant to be taken together. The backdrop of the city providing the context to the message. There will be no miracles here. Where? In this city. Well, for me, that exhibit really captures the conviction of the majority of people in our city. You could say it is our city's statement of faith, or lack of it. There will be no miracles here. Here's the thing. The Bible promises that one day there will be a miracle in this city, and it will be this. The dead will rise from their graves. The words of Jesus hold out that promise in John 5, in verses 28 to 29. He says, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Somber words. It's not just the words of Jesus that hold out that promise for us. Actually, In keeping with our topic tonight, it is the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago that also holds out that promise for us. The event itself is a pledge. Because he rose, we have the guarantee that the dead will rise. Now, I wonder what you make of that. I wonder what you think about that claim of Christ And that promise, the promise of resurrection is generally met with two responses, delight and doubt. A guy called Dale Moody delighted in it. A year before his death, he said this, when you read in the papers, Moody is dead, don't you believe it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. Those who believe the gospel Loved this teaching of Jesus. Moody loved it. It fueled his worship. It tempered his suffering. It softened the blows of grief that were dealt him. And for him, it took the sting out of death. He believed that we will be raised to life. And that those who have their faith in Christ, raised to life with God forever. But sadly, not all delight. Many doubt Jesus' words and instead would add their amen to Nathan Coley's exhibit. Few have any kind of category for the miraculous. 
Some, like atheist Christopher Hitchens, would even say it's a cruel campaign to sow such hope in the hearts and minds of the public. A year before he died, Hitchens wasn't telling people to think of him in heaven. He was writing his memoirs of morality in Vanity Fair. He dismissed all notions of a deathbed conversion or life after death. In his view, he knew how his cancer would play out. My slow, protracted, medicalized demise, he said, is a mere prelude to the dissection of my body by medical students. And the plowing of my chemicals back into the earth. Now maybe some here would share Hitchens' conviction that there will be no miracles here. No resurrection. No dead people rising from their graves. Death is the great full stop. That's it. Well in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 to 34 we find a passage that tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is indeed the promise of a future resurrection. In verses 1 to 11 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul has already underlined for us the historical reliability of the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you weren't there and you have questions about the historical reliability of this and the testimony of the eyewitnesses, can I encourage you to go back and download that and listen to it? But tonight, Paul focuses our attention on this great hope of the resurrection, the way it gives meaning to our ministry, meaning to our lives as Christians, and it acts as a pledge guaranteeing our future resurrection. Essentially, boil it down to this. Life is not empty, and death is not the end. Let's read verses 12 to 34. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. This is God's word. Shall we pray and ask for God's help in understanding this? Lord, this passage is rich with content. And I am weak as a preacher. By the grace of God, you have made me what I am and you have brought us here on this night. And our prayer together is that you would help us understand these words and put them, to pra- put them into practice in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in my introduction, I highlighted that our, you can boil down this passage into two main things. Life is not empty and death is not the end. Let's look first of all at life is not empty, verses 12 to 19. Verse 12 itself might well be displayed in neon light on a six-meter scaffold, just like Coley's exhibit. The Corinthians are saying, there is no resurrection from the dead. But Paul immediately highlights the problem with that. You see, to deny the resurrection from the dead is to render the Christian life and the Christian message as meaningless. You turn it into something that is devoid of God and therefore only human. That's why when you skip down to verse 19, you see Paul saying, If only for this life we have hope in Christ. In other words, if this present life is all that the gospel has to offer us, Not much is gained. In his view, not much worth living for. In fact, the whole thing is emptied of its content and its comfort. Empty is actually the word that Paul uses to describe what happens if there is no resurrection from the dead. Both in terms of ministry and in terms of faith. We read it in the NIV as the word useless. But literally, it means empty. And verses 14 to 18 just shows how the whole of the Christian faith and message just unravels if we do not hold to the resurrection of the dead. 
If there's no resurrection from the dead, if your conviction is that dead men don't rise, then, he, then Christ has not been raised. Christian ministry then would be empty, useless, ineffective because it's based on a lie. As my granddad used to say of general items that, that he was frustrated with, or sometimes his grandchildren, you're about as useless as useless. Useful as a chocolate teapot. You've heard that before. If it's a lie, it's pointless spending your life on it. Especially if it means putting your life in danger. That's what Paul talks about later on in the passage in verses 29 to 32. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. He's saying, why do I endanger myself by scrapping with lions in Ephesus? What is the point if it's all just for, for human reasons? It's not courageous in Paul's view. It's crazy. It's not just Christian ministry that's devoid of its usefulness. Christian faith is too. The the great claim of Christianity is that the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came into this world as a man. He said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He said... To his most venomous opponents. Kill me. Kill this body. And I'll see you again in three days. He died on the cross. Having lived a sinless life. And yet on that cross. Took God's just judgment for sin. Upon himself. As if he was the worst sinner who ever lived. As Paul explains earlier in the passage in verse 3, Christ died for our sins. But to confirm this claim of his, to confirm his identity, God raised him from the dead three days later to vindicate Christ as righteous. God raised him from the dead. To demonstrate Christ's victory over our great enemy, Satan, and his master general, death, God raised him from the dead. Put it all together, and you are left in no doubt. The the resurrection is absolutely core to Christianity. But if the dead are not raised, Paul is saying, it's all empty. It's useless. We have instead invested everything that we are and have in a scheme with absolutely no return. Teachers are false witnesses. We have turned our backs on the pleasures of this world for a heaven that doesn't exist. Your faith is futile. We have forsaken all other ways for a path that ultimately leads to destruction. And we hope in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but that's futile. We are still in our sins. What a predicament Paul paints. For putting our faith in empty things, Paul says in verse 19, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Pitied. People should feel sorry for us. Now, I've heard people say that even if Christianity isn't true, well, it's a wonderful way to live. But Paul says here, what a lot of nonsense. That's a terrible lie. 
If the core of our message is not true, we should not be commended for good morals. We should be considered the world's worst losers. But praise God for verse 20, right? But Christ has been raised from the dead. Now that takes all of these negative implications that we've just looked at from Paul and flips them on their head. It changes everything you see. The resurrection actually does change everything, both in terms of Christian ministry and in terms of the Christian life. The resurrection is the very thing that takes the emptiness out of our lives and fills our lives with hope. It's the very thing that takes the vanity and the emptiness out of our lives and puts purpose and meaning in its place. What a transformation. The truth of the matter is that our sins are forgiven. How do we know that? How do we know we've been redeemed? How do we know we're going to heaven? He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. And the testimony of the apostles all through history, when they were being thrown to lions and set ablaze in the gardens of emperors, he is risen to live as Christ, to die gain. Everything of Christian ministry hangs on this. Everything in Christian discipleship flows from this fundamental reality that Christ was raised from the dead. Ministry is profitable. Preaching, praise God, is profitable. The apostles provide the sure foundation for the church and her doctrine. Truth that can be read, truth that can be relied upon. The Christian faith is not useless. The gospel is in fact Powerful and effective. It really does save if we hold firmly to the truth that is preached and take our stand on it as we should. And we can risk everything. Even as Paul did. Even to the point of putting our lives on the line in tribes where they would rather eat us than listen to us. To live as Christ, to die as gain. This is why we are not to be pitied, envied, instead for unwasted lives, for lives well spent. With John Piper, we might say, oh Lord, let me not come to my grave and say I've wasted it. It does not have to be. Christ lives and our labor in him is not in vain. So you see, for the Christian, life is not empty because Jesus rose from the dead. It's not futile. It's not useless. It's not meaningless. It's not boxing the air. It's doing a work that is effective. And we should continue with great hope and anticipation. There will be a miracle here. There will be a miracle here in this city one day because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Life is not empty. And secondly, neither is death the end. And this is what we see in verses 20 to 28. This is breathtaking. What we're supposed to see in this time 
is that Christ's resurrection, in this section, is Christ's resurrection is the first of many. Look at verse 20 with me again. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now what is Paul talking about here? What's this first fruits thing all about? Well, Paul is looking back to an Old Testament celebration that's uh, written out for us to see in Leviticus chapter 23. The Old Testament people of God were instructed that at the first sign of a harvest, they were to bring the portion, the best portion, of that first crop to come in and give it to the priests in the temple. The priest would then take this bundle of barley and in the temple, just wave it. Just wave it. And it was full of significance and full of meaning. It marked the start of this this feast of first fruits. But it was essentially a prayer of thanksgiving in anticipation of a future harvest. It was, we're excited about what's to come. We are looking forward to this. This is going to be a good year. And so it is with Christ. Christ's resurrection is the promise of ours. And just as the priest stood up in that day and waved this first little bunch of barley to say, there is a harvest to come, rejoice, get ready. So Christ's resurrection from the dead communicates the same thing to us. Because he was raised His resurrection guarantees a line of future resurrections. Ours. That's what Paul Tripp says. He was not Christ. His, sorry, start again. His was not intended to be the only resurrection. But the first of many future resurrections guaranteed by his. He is the first of an enormous crop of souls that will one day be harvested to eternal life. And what Paul is trying to show us here is that Christ's resurrection, 2,000 years ago now, is the deposit. It's the first installment, the guarantee of what is to come. His resurrection, the great preview of the great miracle to be seen by all on that day when he returns. And, irrespective of how odd it sounds, will call the dead from their graves where some will rise to eternal life in glory and great joy with him and others to rise for their sentencing. In verse 22, we are promised all in Christ will be made alive. And in verse 23, we're provided with the order of play. Each in turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. What a great prospect. What a great prospect. Paul goes on to show that Christ is not just the first fruits. Proving that death is not the end. He is 
he explains a bit about why that has taken place. How can this be? If you're asking that question, Paul provides the answer. He answers by explaining that Christ became our representative. Christ became our representative. Paul's conviction that the resurrection of Christ was not an isolated event is based on the fact that Christ is not an ordinary individual. He, as the God-man, is what we call the head, a special representative of humankind. So much so that what he does has repercussions for all of humanity. I suppose we might be helped to look at uh, the, the thing called power of attorney to illustrate this concept of representation. Author Jerry Bridges in his book Discipline of Grace brings this out wonderfully in one of his chapters. He tells the story of a friend of his who wanted to remortgage his house. But when it came to, uh, to settling... Uh, the, the refinancing of their house, it was going to take place on a day when they would be out of the country. So he, uh, this man who was going to be out of the country, granted Bridges power of attorney to act on his behalf. Bridges says, I went to that appointment as my friend's representative. When I signed those documents, it's just as if they had signed them. When I signed off on their agreement to pay a certain amount each month, it was as legally binding on them as if they themselves had signed it. In the same way, we are told by Paul that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, in the same way, Paul points to Adam as our representative in the first instance in the Garden of Eden by virtue of his creation, his, his place in creation. He was our head to the point that when he sinned, his action was as binding on us as if we had sinned personally. But the good news is that Christ came as the new Adam the new representative head of humanity. He acts on our behalf, assuming the obligations and all of the responsibilities in which Adam failed. The question we can ask is, did Jesus fail by sinning against God, by rebelling as Adam did, disobeying his word, turning from God's authority to live his own way? Well, the answer is no. And again, you might ask the question, well, how do we know that? God raised his son from the dead to vindicate his life and reward his work on the cross with the salvation of souls. That's how. That's what it means for Christ to be our representative. Just as in Adam's sin, we were caught up as sinners so in Christ's resurrection, we have been set free. We have been given a receipt to show us that the sacrifice for sin has been accepted by God the Father. And a guarantee with that receipt of our future resurrection too.
Now with that in mind, read verses 21 to 22 again. Paul says, since death came through a man, there's Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul is helping us to understand that death, the penalty for sin, is gone. As we'll see next week, death is still present, it remains, but its sting is gone. But on that day when Christ returns, death, that last enemy, will be abolished forever. And God will be all in all. Everything under his feet. Everything in subjection to him. As it should be. And verses 24 to 28 point out that when he comes and the dead are raised... All enemies bow the knee. And we see in love and in submission within God the Holy Trinity. The Son of God hands over the spoils of victory to the Father. Mission accomplished. People rescued. God is all in all filling everything in every way. Now these are truths of such magnitude. Meditating a sermon series in themselves. Meditate on these. Think about these. But realize that this resurrection of Jesus Christ is intended to communicate to us and help us see not just that life, to tell us that life is not empty but death is not the end. The resurrection of Jesus has in fact determined our existence beyond the expiration of this body. This is a mobile home you live in, you understand. The resurrection of Jesus has determined our existence for all time and eternity. We do not merely live out our length of days and then maybe just have the hope of a resurrection as an add-on. But rather Paul makes it clear we have this assurance That Christ's resurrection has set in motion a chain of unstoppable events that actually, in reality, determines our future. There is life beyond death. Christ is the first fruits of those who are his, of those who will be raised at his coming. The warning then comes for the Corinthians. At the end of the passage, from verse 29 and following. You're all wondering about this baptism for the dead thing. What's all that about? Well, Paul's not endorsing the practice. We know that from what Paul says elsewhere, that it's, it's ludicrous to baptize someone who is alive in the hope that the effects of that baptism might benefit someone who has died. That is not what he's teaching. He is rather saying, he's showing them almost the hypocrisy of their practice, you see. Because he said in verse 12, you guys are declaring there is no resurrection from the dead. And he said, well, if that's the case, why are you practicing what you practice? He lines it all up, you know, you guys are practicing this in your church and I'm facing lions in Ephesus and those kind of things. He's just, he's just showing them that, that what they say and what they practice is inconsistent. 
and they need to straighten themselves out. Remember, this is not a church that is in good order. (laughs) They're in need of a lot of help. So Paul encourages them. And Paul encourages all of us who read this book down through the ages to ensure that we are not misled by our cultural views. As Paul says, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Doesn't that define our culture? I mean, it's defined culture after culture after culture for year after year after year through the ages. It's a picture of a godless society. There will be no miracles here. But Paul's encouragement is don't be misled by this. It's not true. Life is not empty. Death is not the end. Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross and rose again as the first fruits, guaranteeing your future inheritance. There will be a miracle one day. I'm really hoping that there's some ancient Christian burial site underneath the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art so that on that day when Christ comes back, boom, someone's going to come right through that thing. <laughs> Christ is the first fruits policy. He's already said in verses 1 to 11, it, it really happened. Christ raised from the dead. It really matters. He died for your sins. He is the first fruits promising, guaranteeing. He's a pledge of what is to come. So don't be misled by the cultural desires around us. Don't be deceived by the enticement of sin. It promises much but delivers nothing. So Paul's encouragement in verse 34, come back to your senses. It's actually a word that suggests you should rouse yourself from drunkenness. Waking up, rouse yourself. Come back to your senses and stop sinning. Brothers and sisters here, we need to grasp the reality of the resurrection to come. We need to grasp the impact that Christ's resurrection has on us. It makes our lives meaningful. It takes the vanity out of them and fills them with purpose. So are we living in light of the resurrection of Christ and in light of our resurrection to come? Paul's already picked up on so many different aspects of Christian living in this book of 1 Corinthians. Where if you have a wonky view of either one of those bookends, if you like, you're in trouble. So why Run after sexual immorality. Oh, we're not going to be raised from the grave later on. This body's just for living now. Well, no, you've got that wrong, Paul explains earlier. We need to let the reality of Christ's resurrection and the future resurrection shape everything. Shape our perspective on life. We must make a heavenly, eternal investment and be happy about it. Even if it means scrapping with lions. In the hope that someone might hear the gospel and be saved. Let this reality not just shape your perspective on life, but your perspective, brothers and sisters, on suffering. Accept it and endure it as momentary. It really is momentary compared to the countless age of eternity 
accept it and endure it and be joyful in it. And brothers and sisters, let this reality shape our perspective on mission. Let it stimulate in us an urgency to tell others and a joyfulness in broadcasting this. This is the message of life. And there is no other. Remembering Jesus' words from the beginning. That a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. They move from one to the other by us telling them, you know. So we must be stimulated by these truths with an urgency to tell others. I'm conscious always that we have people with us who don't know Jesus, who haven't confessed their sins, trusted in him. People who may be asking questions, uh, exploring what Christianity is about. Some probably dragged along and really don't want to be here and think, yep, you're fruitcakes. I want to say to you tonight that the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of eternity are, are, are necessary for you to consider because without these things, the sin inside of you is an inescapable reality. A representative head who does for you what you cannot do is what your soul screams for, you understand. Why else do we get ourselves in such a tizzy over a man from Dunblane hitting a wee yellow ball over a net and getting very excited about it? Why all the hype when Murray plays at Wimbledon? Why all the hype when he wins? We want a winner. In our heart of hearts, we desperately want someone that we can attach ourselves to. We want someone acting on our behalf so that we can say, Hi, Scottish. I mean British. He's one of us. He's one of us. His victory is our victory. So we celebrate as he has celebrated. In the same way, we're looking for a saviour. Someone to deal with the condition that we know deep down inside. We are sinners. Life is more than just these four score years and ten. That death is not the end. We need someone to pin our hopes on. Someone who's been there, done that, come back and said, I've made a way for you to live with me forever. In eternal happiness. You know, there is another lie propagated by the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art. The picture is going to come on screen. Another lie preached to a passing crowd by blue neon lights. Have you seen this? Everything is going to be all right. I think again that is what people in our city believe. It's all fine. It'll all be good in the end. Everything is going to be all right. Well, God's word says that's not true. 
there will be no square inch of creation where resistance to him will not be quelled. So the call similarly for you, friend, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, is come to your senses. Rouse yourself from your drunken stupor. Stop sinning. Remembering what was read to us from Psalm 2 earlier, that those who rebel against God will be broken to pieces like pottery. That's quite a picture. If I was that psalmist, I'd be thinking, oh, you might want to edit that. That's, that's, a, that's a punch, isn't it? But it's true. But please don't hear that without hearing the appeal at the end. Kiss the son. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And you be justly judged in the end. You know how you kiss the son? You say sorry, thank you, please. You say sorry for the sins that you've committed. You say thank you to God for sending Jesus to die on the cross as your representative, as your substitute, the power of attorney, the one who died in your place to take away your sin. And you say, please come and live in me as I look forward to that great day when this body will be raised imperishable and I see you face to face. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for, for the joy of thinking about how these truths are earth in our experience now. Life for us is not meaningless and useless. Life is not empty, but it's it's filled with purpose and meaning and significance, and we thank you for that. And we thank you that Jesus came to deal with our sin and to rise from the dead as the first fruits, as the pledge, the guarantee of a line of future resurrections of ours. Thank you for accrediting his words back in John 5 uh, by his resurrection from the dead, for vindicating his sinless life, approving his sacrifice on the cross for us, and granting us by your grace eternal life in him. Please, Lord, let us live like it. Like we are grateful for that resurrection in the past and looking forward to the resurrection to come. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to close.